0: Good morning. I'm in the shade. Many of you are in the shade. It's kind of nice. Some of you like the sun. God's got a little breeze for you and an occasional cloud so it's a nice it's a full experience this morning for church right So well I thought I'd start a story I've told before. I affectionately call it the corn story. It's a part of my family history and I think it'll get us going into what Paul's going to try to do in the text this morning. I remember back, this was probably almost 30 years ago now, but I was home eating dinner with my mom and my middle sister. My older sister was off at college. I don't remember all that we were eating, but I remember eating corn for dinner. And my mom, my sister, and I were going around the table just sharing stories from the day. And my mom started to begin, and this is basically what she said. She said, You know, I went to Churchill's today, which was our local grocery store. I went to Churchill's today, and I ran into Mrs. Simmons, which wasn't really a surprise because Mrs. Simmons worked at Churchill's, so that often happened. And Mrs. Simmons said to me, she said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm buying corn for supper. And then my mom began to start eating again. My sister and I were eating while she was talking, but when she finished and started eating, we stopped eating because that couldn't be the end of the story because that wasn't a story at all. And we were perplexed and we waited and waited and my mom said nothing and then my sister and I looked at each other and burst into laughter and immediately called my older sister off at college to tell her what mom had just done. It became known in our family as the corn story. We affectionately refer to it anytime somebody repeats history. Any anytime anybody in our family, which happens, although it's less because we have this story as a part of our tradition, but anytime somebody tells a story with no meaning or no purpose, that's utterly obvious, and we already knew. we say corn story," and we laugh and silently tease our mother, probably not the best, but that's what we do. <laughs> But Paul is doing a very similar thing. We're journeying through 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And what he's doing is telling some stories from the history, from the family of God. And he's reminding the Corinthians about these stories. And and in many ways, these stories are are meant to serve as a warning or example, or as as Paul will say, as instruction. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. Let's plow new ground in Christ. Now, the broader context is somewhat culturally sensitive to the first century. In the first century, they didn't really have restaurants. They gathered in the Roman world. In the Gentile world, they gathered to eat, to celebrate parties at temples. At temples to what Christians would say were false gods. And there's been a lot of questions from this young church in Corinth. What do we do? How do we live this Jesus life in this Roman culture what do we do with these idols and these foods, sacrificed to idols, and these meals at the temple? And Paul has said, and he's going to reiterate this at the end of our passage, but in this whole section he said again and again, idols are nothing. They're just statues made by men. They're not, they're not real. There's only one true God. His name is Jesus. And Paul has said, meet sacrificed to idols. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. If you're with somebody with a weaker conscience, be loving. But there's nothing to the idol, so eat what you want to eat. But in this part of his argument, he's going to be pretty strong in saying, yes, idols are nothing, eat whatever meat, but don't go to the temples to eat. Because there's more going on at the temples, and he's going to get into some of it in these verses. There's a lot of immorality that went with these meals at these pagan temples and shrines. And Paul's going to say, we just can't we just can't go there. As Christians, we can't go there. And he's going to give his reasons for that. But we'll begin in verse 1. We're going to work our way through verse 22 this morning. If you have your Bibles or if it's windy and you just want to look on your phone. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our fathers, which is interesting because... Paul is writing to a community of Jews and Gentiles, but he even views the Gentiles as now part of this family of God. And their Jewish fathers are all of our fathers, right? It's just we're a part of the family. We've been grafted in as Gentiles. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This is the story of Moses and the exodus. And all were baptized into Moses. Moses was their leader. They trusted Moses. This was their baptism into this family, into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same food and all drank the same spiritual drink. There's connections to what we would call today the ordinances or the sacraments of baptism and communion. But then in verse 4, he goes on this kind of, it's just this interesting thing that we'll have to think a little bit about. Paul says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, but they for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. It's an interesting thing. we have to sit with it for a minute, but if if you allow your mind to go down this cartoonish roll, you picture the people of God going through the wilderness through the desert, and this rock kind of grows legs and kind of this. Cartoon rock just goes wherever they go. It's kind of like a puppy dog rock, right? You almost picture that. That's not what Paul's saying, but, but you almost picture that. It's this rock. Paul's looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. He's finding Jesus everywhere. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. In the wilderness, only, only Joshua and Caleb are actually going to make it into the promised land. For most of them were overthrown in the wilderness. Let's talk a little bit about this story that Paul's referencing here as he talks about this rock that's following them. If you want to do a little reading later this week or later today, you can go back to Exodus chapter 17. I'll talk a little bit about it this morning, or Numbers chapter 20. But in the story of Israel in the wilderness, as they have been freed from slavery in Egypt and on their way to the promised land, they they travel through the wilderness and twice for 40 years they wander it doesn't take 40 years to get there but they wander they they meander they they go the wrong ways they rebel against God and twice in their need Moses hits a rock that spews forth water and quenches their thirst in the desert so it happens twice so you kind of have the sense that Paul's saying well this rock followed them around wherever they really needed water the rock was there I want, to, I want to take you back to Exodus 17, the first time Moses hits the rock. They're in a place called Rephidim. We don't know anything about Rephidim other than it had no water. It was a place of no water. It was a place of thirst. We begin to see that you don't mess with people's idols or their desires or the deep longings of their hearts. Moses had led them out of slavery, but somehow they're still enslaved to their desires. They get a little ways into their journey in the desert. They have no water. They begin to complain. They blame. They scapegoat Moses. They begin to say things like, man, life was hard in Egypt, but we were never going to die of thirst. And and actually Moses thinks they're going to stone him. They're going to kill him. So Moses cries out to God, hey, this is not cool, God. What do we do? And God's like, well, what's the problem? Moses is like, we're thirsty. And to to be completely honest, if you read Exodus 17, God seems somewhat unimpressed. Oh, you just need water? That's no big deal. (laughs) You're in the desert. What What do you think? Yeah, of course you need water. I got that. That's no big deal. And so God gives Moses a plan. And what happens? Again, this is part of even, I think, the rock following them. God tells Moses to go ahead. And so Moses and a few others leave the people in Rephidim and they walk if you were with us a few years ago, we preached on this. They go to Mount Sinai, Texas, Mount Horeb. It's the same place, Mount Sinai. And it is at Mount Sinai that Moses hits a rock with a stick and water pours forth. But the people are still in Rephidim. And the psalmist in Psalm 105, verse 41, Psalm one hundred five forty-one 41 gives us a little bit more context. He says that Moses strikes a rock and a river flows. It gives us this picture that Moses has gone ahead of the people to Mount Sinai into the very presence of God. And he hits a rock, and this river is going to flow. And you can imagine the people are back at Rephidim, and they're thirsty and they're frustrated. Where did Moses go? Did he leave us here to die? And then eventually, not long after Moses has left, some trickles of water begin to come into Rephidim. They're thirsty, they're hot, they're tired. And that water just begins to pick up. I don't know if you've ever watched nature videos, but this actually happens in the desert from time to time. The water begins to flow and flow and flow, and then it becomes a river. And you can just imagine the people are hot, and they're thirsty, and they're playing in the water, and they're drinking, and they're satisfied, and Moses comes back, and everyone is finally happy because they've gotten what they wanted. But I think part of what Moses and God are trying to help the people understand kind of physically and then on to spiritually, and that's what Paul is doing here, trying to make some spiritual connections that Jesus himself will make. That the source of your ultimate thirst is the presence of God himself. That there's a river that flows from Sinai, from the presence of God, and if you follow the river, if you follow your thirst, if you follow your deepest, truest, most authentic desires... To be whole, to be complete, to be known, to be loved, to be at rest, to live with purpose, to live with peace. You will find your way into the very presence of God. Our desires or our thirst are a gift from God to lead us into the very presence of God. Our spiritual thirst is a craving deep within our soul. It's when you feel, you know, and you know the feeling, I know you felt it throughout this last year, that feeling of I want more. I want more than I'm experiencing. I want to be known more than I'm known. I want to be heard. I want to be seen. I want to be with others. I know there's more to life. There's got to be more. I'm dissatisfied. I'm longing for more. I'm thirsty. Well, there's a river that will quench your thirst that leads you straight into the presence of God. All humanity was born and created for God, but we're born into sin and we're separated from God and we're not satisfied and we're discontent and we're hustling and scrambling and trying to satisfy and fulfill ourselves. And God, it just seems he frees us. I mean, this is his picture. Paul says, learn from the example. He frees us from our bondage and our slavery to sin. And he's leading us into the kingdom of God, into the promised land, into a kingdom of abundance where there is no scarcity. But the journey for every single one of us goes from Egypt through the desert, through the wilderness, through a place where we learn what it truly means to be thirsty. And then we're ready to enter the kingdom of God. I think often about desires in the culture that we live in. Desires are a gift from God, but we often misunderstand them because we live in such a consumeristic, consumer-driven society. We are often told, and I think many times of you in high school and junior high and college, we are, we are told that we are the desires that we have. That our personal desires are sacred. We are told that if you don't know who you are, you need to look deep inside yourself and feel what it is you think you want most. And then as you express that feeling or that desire, you will discover who you really are. I, I think that's a false story, but we are told that again and again and again. Our entire economy is built on the cultivation and fulfillment of consumer desire. Each product or service offered on advertisements comes with a promise. Fulfill this desire and you will get what you ultimately want. And we end up functionally believing that to fulfill our desires would be the surest, quickest way to get the life we've always dreamed of. And so we try to eliminate the things that keep us from getting what we want. But if you live long enough, you also know that from your own personal experience, this isn't true. Getting your desires met does not automatically lead to happiness. And and sometimes it just leads to more discontentment. It's never enough, never enough, never enough. You and I can easily end up in bondage to our desires, unable to will or want other than what our desires tell us that we must have. And with Israel, we get deformed. We will talk about become what we worship We worship ourselves, we worship our desires, and we end up as the kind of people who are ready to stone Moses, our leader who led us out of slavery into freedom for not getting us what we think we want. And part of the reason we all go through the wilderness and why Paul is using this as an example is because the wilderness serves to stop the rat race long enough to slow us down, to be contemplative, to pay attention to what we thirst for most of all. What is it we want most of all? Moses is trying to show them that your physical thirst is a picture of your spiritual thirst. Now, Moses was never really able to help the Israelites understand this. But part of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and we'll see this as we keep reading, is that you have Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate expression of who God is. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to live a fulfilling life, follow Jesus. Do what Jesus did. Imitate Jesus. Learn to live like Jesus and you will find the answer to every question you have and the solution to every problem and the fulfillment of every desire and the satisfaction of every need. That's who Jesus is. Jesus says, if you drink from the water I offer you, you will never thirst again. It's the water of eternal life. Jesus is the better Moses. And Paul, in a sense, is saying, you have Jesus. Don't don't fall into the same traps of our forefathers, (laughs) There's a new way. Follow Jesus. You have everything you need. Learn from the past. Jesus tells us a fuller story. He fills out the story more completely. We find out that we are more than just our desires. That our desires are simply a gift and they are a true gift from God to lead us into life with God. So often we settle for what we would call surface desires. For what feels like money or wealth or reputation or status or success for power for pleasure for comfort for safety for ease but if we if we if we if we enter the wilderness if we pause and rephidim if we allow ourselves to pay attention to our thirst we will realize that all of those are just surfaced but behind all of those and I think this is true for all of us and all of our neighbors what we want is a life where we're at peace We're not exhausted. We're not overwhelmed by stress and anxiety. We're not afraid. and We're not hiding. We know who we are. We're confident in who we are. We're, We're seen. We're esteemed by someone who esteems us. We're loved. We live with purpose and meaning. We know why we're here. Jesus satisfies every one of those longings. Jesus again and again routinely helped people name their desires. If you read through the Gospels, And over and over again, Jesus helped people see how everything they were looking for was found in him. Paul says, don't forget that. Don't forget that. Don't forget that we were created for so much more. Let's keep reading. That's kind of what I've just been saying. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us that we may not again desire evil as they did. The story of Israel in the wilderness wilderness serves as a pattern for us so that we should not become evil cravers. People who yearn and hanker and lust after things which don't bring honor to God. And that's the big thing. Don't do us any good. They actually don't do us any good. Paul says, don't be that way. Don't don't become people who desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. And he's going to reference more stories. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And behind that word play is not just fun, entertainment, it's immorality. It's idolatry. It's rebellion. It's revelry. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put our Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. I'm going to come back to that when we get ready for communion this morning. Nor should we grumble as some of them did. They were constantly complaining. It was better in Egypt. It wasn't, but they, it was better in Egypt. What's wrong with you, Moses? Don't be that way. They were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction. Learn from them. Because we're at the end of the ages. We're in the, we're in the age to come, the dawn of the new day. The new creation is breaking in. Let's live new lives. Don't go back to the old. We're moving forward into the new. And then he says, and it's a pretty strong warning, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now Paul's having some trouble with this church in Corinth, and again and again he has some pretty harsh warnings. They're meant to be heard strongly. What Paul is saying is, you and I are not as strong as we think we are. And there's a sense that the church in Corinth is beginning to wonder if God's way is really better. If God is really capable of looking after them, they're learning that as they follow Jesus, there are other challenges. What do you mean we can't go and be with other people at the temple shrines? What do you mean? If we don't do that, is God going to be able to supply what we need? Can he really look after us if we forsake some things for his name? And Paul's saying, oh, yes. Paul's giving them a warning. If you go back to the old ways, you're going to re enslave yourself. You're going to be destroyed just as they were. But then he says this, and I try to, we talk about love as a calibration of grace and truth. He gives a lot of truth, strong truth to the Corinthians, but he's constantly following that up with assurance. Grace and truth, grace and truth. Verse 13 is an incredible picture of the grace of God. Paul wants you to hear this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to all. Every, every human being, we'll talk about even Jesus himself, has been tempted. But God is faithful. God is faithful. God has made you promises, and God will do what he said he would do. And God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Hear this promise. This is true for you. God will not let you be, yes, you will be tempted. But God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape so that you can endure it, so that you won't be overcome. Is God? Yes, God is capable because God is faithful. There's another way out because God is faithful. I've learned this lesson through some big, long seasons. I remember going to seminary. Believe it or not, but seminary was more expensive than my undergraduate degree, <laughs> And I was preparing to make less money. And I remember Kami and I just wrestling through, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to afford this? We're going to be bankrupt. We're going to be in debt in major ways. We head off to seminary. the seminary. Then the mathematics, and I knew math. The mathematics did not add up. And somehow, in a, in a variety of ways, God provided again and again and again for our needs and somehow we made it out of the seminary. We weren't in debt. Now, we weren't wealthy, but we weren't in debt. And God had provided. I know that God is faithful in all kinds of circumstances. But I've also learned it along the way in what I would call just kairos moments, just reading and contemplating. I've said this before, but I remember reading a book by Hannah Hernard called Heinz Feet on High Places. It's an allegorical book about a, a, a character. Her name is much afraid. And she's constantly giving in to temptation. She's constantly finding herself in all kinds of places of trouble, or at least maybe not giving in to temptation, but she's in places of great temptation. And again and again, page after page, she's in trouble and she cries out to the Good Shepherd. And I remember reading the book being like, What's wrong with you? You just cried out for the Good Shepherd last page. Can't you do anything on your own? But that's part of the story she kept being in trouble she kept being tempted but she kept crying out and every single time she cried out the good shepherd showed up and if, i mean it's a book it's an allegory but as i read that the holy spirit was was impressing upon my heart jeff that's true for you cross you that's true for you if, if things are hard if you're in a place of temptation cry out to god he will now it might not be in the ways you expect and you might have to endure a little bit. Moses has gone off. You might have to wait for the stream to come to you. You might have to endure a little bit of uncomfort of thirst in the heat of the desert. But God will provide a way. I'm reading a book right now with my son, Jay. I like to, we like to read some of these epic novels. So we're reading one. It's my first time ever reading it. It's called The Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson. I'm, I'm, we're almost done with book two. We're not done with the whole thing yet. But it's about a grandpa and, and his daughter and his, his two grandsons and his granddaughter and, and, and their uncle and this random book guy. I don't know why the bookkeeper's in it, but he is. There's this <laughs> random group of people and they're on this pilgrimage and all the way through the book, they're running into trials and they look like dead end trials. But all the way through the grandpa keeps showing and modeling and now the grandkids are learning God will always give a way out. There's always a way. Don't give up and don't give in. God will make a way. It's a, it's a powerful story that we inhabit as Christians. Now, I know there's a way out, but sometimes you and I are better at finding the way in, right? We just Somehow we keep finding ourselves in these places of difficulty, in these deserts, in these hard places of temptation. Somehow you and I are really good at getting into places where we want to give up and we want to give in. Man, that's true of all of our stories. We all get there sometimes, but I want you to hear today, Jesus will make a way. Just hang in a little bit longer. That stream from Sinai is coming your way, and you're going to dance in the water, and you're going to splash, and you're going to drink, and you're going to be satisfied. God will make a way. He is faithful. That is who our God is. Let's keep reading verses 14 to 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. What Paul is getting across in these verses is that above all else, there is a real danger for Christians in having anything to do with idolatry. Jesus says you can't love God and love mammon. You can't serve two masters. There's a real danger. And Paul is saying the best course is not to argue with it. Don't examine it to see whether it's really as bad as you thought. Get out and run. Flee, treat it as as if it were an infectious and deadly disease. We know something about that, right? (laughs) Because in a sense, idolatry really is just that. Verse fifteen. I speak as to sensible people. You're smart. Judge for yourselves what I say. And and he's going to kind of give us a little bit of teaching on communion here. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So, again, this is where we hold to some sacred mystery. I've I've learned a little bit. I've studied some church history. And I'm content with communion to say I can confess more than I can explain. Christianity is a confession. It's not always an explanation. And in the past, our brothers and sisters have tried to explain communion. And all it's done is led to division and confusion. So I'm content to confess more than I can explain. I don't know exactly what it means that we participate in the blood of Christ. But that's what Paul says. When you and I take the juice the cup this morning in a few minutes we are literally participating in the life of Jesus experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus the holy spirit is transcending time and what Jesus did on the cross 2000 years ago is being traveled through time to us here today and we are participating in the crucifixion of Jesus The bread that we break, the bread that is broken for us. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's what Paul is saying. I don't don't understand it all, but we're participating in the life of Jesus. And we do it as one family because there is one bread and we are many of one body. We all partake of the one bread. And then he's going to go back to Israel. Consider the people of Israel or the priests, those who ate the sacrifices. Did they not participate in the altar? Did they not participate in the very life of God? So Paul's making that argument, and then he's going to say, well, if that's true of communion, if we believe that's true of communion, again, he's going back to these meals in the temples. Is that not also true when it comes to Satan and his demons? Verse 19, what do I imply then? The food to offer to idols, is that anything? Or that the idol is anything? No, we already talked about that. There's, the idols are nothing. There's no other gods. There's only one God. There's only one creator. There's only one redeemer. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can eat food offered to idols. It doesn't matter. But verse 20, what I am saying is that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot revel you cannot rebel you cannot participate in immorality and things that god has said that's not good for you it's not good for your soul you can't do that and then turn around and participate at the table you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons verse 22 should we provoke the lord to jealousy because god is jealous for us are we stronger than god Few more thoughts here. So, what Paul is saying is what an idol is negatively, the communion table, the Lord's table is positively. And somehow an idol is a connection with the demonic. Communion is a connection with the divine. That's why we'll later in the in the letter we'll see there's some warnings about how we participate in the Lord's Supper. But also notice that Paul is careful not to say too much about these demonic powers. I don't think he wants the Corinthians to get too interested in them. He doesn't want them to be our focus. Our focus is Jesus, and that's enough. But he is warning them that though the God in the shrine is nothing more than a man-made statue of gold, silver, or whatever, there are evil forces, there are real demonic powers that use the worship offered to the non-gods in order to gain power over both the worshipers themselves and the world around and if you're thoughtful about life, you may know exactly what I'm talking about. Somehow, when you and I engage in various acts of idolatry, we are giving power to these demons by worshiping them. Actually, Paul doesn't say a lot about the demonic, but one of my favorite, most helpful phrases that he uses, he connects the demonic with the powers and principalities. I mean, it's a sermon for another day, but... But somehow as we worship something other than the true God that we were made in the image of, made to worship this God, somehow we give power, we become enslaved. Just a few examples, and and you may know what I'm talking about here. But if you've ever found yourself in a season where you worship success, you will become the kind of person who will do anything for success. If you ever find yourself in a season where you're worshiping money, you will realize that greed will consume you. You will never have enough. Many of us get caught up in our current world by worshiping comfort. We, we love comfort. We worship ease. We want an easy life. We love safety. We don't want anything to be dangerous or risky or hard. But you learn it'll never be enough. If you worship power, you won't be able to follow Jesus because Jesus lays down power for others. And if you worship power, you'll protect it and defend it and you'll never be able to lay it down for another in the name of Jesus. You'll become trapped and enslaved again. You'll go back to Egypt. But Paul's saying, God is faithful. Are you stronger than God? No, God is stronger and he's rightfully jealous because he has made us for him. And God knows honestly what we need. He wills good for us. He loves us. He knows what will satisfy us. He's jealous for us. And he sees us destroying ourselves. And it breaks his heart. God knows that the more we give to an idol, the less we get. And Jesus has made it clear. He and he alone provides the water so that we'll never thirst again. Jesus and Jesus alone can quench our thirst. We become what we worship, and if you worship Jesus, you become more and more like Jesus. But if you worship anything other than Jesus, you become less like him and more the idol that you're worshiping. We become what we worship either to our own ruin and destruction or to our own restoration and ultimate joy and satisfaction. Well, just a few more words here about Jesus. I want to go back to kind of verses four and five, this Paul's kind of looking, I say often that we go to the Old Testament and we look to Jesus as our guide. As Christians, we can go looking for Jesus in the Old Testament because the whole story is about him. And it climaxes in him. He's the fulfillment of everything. I like to tell people and remind people, Jesus is the high priest making the sacrifice at the altar. He's also, the New Testament authors will say, he's the lamb on the altar. And he's also the altar where the the lamb is being sacrificed. And he's also the temple, the place where God's presence dwells. He's, he's fulfilling the whole Old Testament. So we can go looking for Jesus in the Old Testament, but we learn from the New Testament authors how to do this. We don't do it haphazardly or recklessly. But Paul is saying here, Jesus is the one who's going to quench your thirst. He's, going, he's the rock that travels with you in the wilderness. You're not alone. Jesus himself will make sure you get from Egypt into the promised land. And I, and I think this language is interesting as I go looking for Jesus in this story. It's interesting in verse, I think it's verse 5. Paul uses the language of how God was displeased with the Israelites and so they were overthrown in the wilderness. And, and it takes me, I mean, one of the most famous passages for me is the baptism of Jesus what's happening in the baptism and leads into Jesus going into the wilderness and confronting the demonic forces confronting Satan himself i teach on this in our discipleship pathway form i spent a little bit more time on it there but but Jesus is is going to be baptized and the father says over him his identity his true identity again we're more than our desires He says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now in Christ, you and I step into that identity as well. Jesus is the son of God in a unique way. He's God in human flesh. But we are adopted into the family and we are children of God. We are beloved by God and God is pleased with us in Christ. Jesus is baptized. We're told that God is pleased with him. Not displeased, but well pleased. But immediately then Jesus is ushered into the wilderness because it's where we all go. He's in the wilderness and he goes face to face with Satan and he's going to be tempted. It's all this is in the story, I think, with Paul here. And first, Satan is going to come to Jesus. We talk more about this in our discipleship pathway, but he's going to say, turn these stones into bread. Show me what you can do. I say frequently that one of the identities that you and I are tempted to believe to shrink the fullness of who we are is that we are what we do. But Jesus looks at Satan and what, what, what basically is going to happen is Jesus is going to overthrow Satan everywhere the Israelites were overthrown in the wilderness. He's going to succeed everywhere the Israelites failed. He is the ultimate faithful one, the perfect human, God in human flesh. And in a sense, Jesus is going to be able to look at Satan and say, The Father's already pleased with me. He told me at my baptism. I don't have to please you. In other words, and you can hear this, in Christ, you don't have to be afraid that you haven't done enough. You don't have to try to strive or or prove that you're worthy of the love of God. God loves you. He just loves you. God is love. He's faithful and he loves you. You don't have to prove that you're worthy. He's already pleased with you in Christ. Well, then Satan brings a new temptation. It's a real temptation. He takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, well, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? We all know the angels will catch you. Your approval rating will be through the earth, I, I, through the roof. I've, I've told you before, that's one of my greatest temptations is to limit myself, to simply define my identity as I am who others say that I am, to live for approval, to make that my idol. Jesus is able to say to Satan, I, I, the, the father's told, I'm the son. A child is always has the approval of their parent. I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need an approval rating. In other words, you don't have to be afraid of not being enough. I want you to hear that this morning. In Christ, I know you're tempted to be afraid that you haven't done enough or you, you aren't enough. You don't have to be afraid of that. Because in Jesus Christ, you are enough. You receive the love of the Father. You know the love of the Father. Father's pleased with you. You're his child. He calls you his own. I told you the value of your life. The value is what somebody's willing to pay, and Jesus paid it all. He gave his life so that you can have life. That tells you how much you're worth. And then finally, Satan takes Jesus and shows him the kingdom of the earth and says, Bow down to me. I think there's a major temptation for Jesus, actually. This is the easy way. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to give your life. You don't have to suffer for people. I'll just give it to you now. Bow down to me and I will give you the kingdom. I will satisfy your every appetite, your every desire. And Jesus is able to say, "I'm, I'm the beloved son. I have the love of the father. And believe me, Satan, if I have the love of the father, I have everything that I need. You don't have to fear that you don't have enough. Somehow we have been conditioned, and I think a lot of it has to do with our consumer culture, But you and I have been conditioned to believe that we live in a world of scarcity. But Jesus comes to us again and again in the kingdom and says, no, the kingdom is abundant. Everything Jesus says about the kingdom is a kingdom that's growing, that's bearing fruit, that's prosperous a hundredfold. You don't have to be afraid that you don't have enough, that you haven't done enough, that you aren't enough. Jesus is the one who faces every temptation in the wilderness, and he succeeds, and he wins. And that is why you and I follow Jesus. He's the better Moses. He's He's faithful. You can trust him. Don't lose sight of this. Now, some of you may may be in a spiritual wilderness right now. We've been coming off a hard year. Maybe things feel dry or lifeless to you right now. You're just not feeling it. Well, I want, I want you to hear this. If you're, if you're in a spiritual wilderness, don't despair. It's a necessary part of the journey. We all go through it. It's not unique or something strange that's happened to you. We, all, we don't always talk about it enough. But from time to time, we all pass through the spiritual wilderness. So don't, don't despair. It's a normal thing. It's part of what gets us into the promised land. And I guess what I want you to hear this morning, if you feel dry and lifeless, is that you're not alone. Jesus is with you, and he's making a way. And again, maybe you're still waiting for the water to reach you. But it's coming. I promise you it's coming. Hang in there. Deal with your thirst a little bit longer, and Jesus will quench it. And Jesus himself will guarantee you'll make it to the promised land. You'll make it to the kingdom. Jesus wants you to know the fullness of kingdom life. And I think... You know, some of us are even experiencing it. Things are starting to change and we're connecting. We, we, we're desperate, we're lonely, and we're connecting more with each other. And if you're feeling that, just keep your eyes locked on Jesus. Don't take credit for what Jesus is doing. Practice gratitude. If you find yourself excited, you're, you're joyful, good things are happening, praise Jesus, practice Jesus, acknowledge Jesus, and keep drinking from his well of eternal life. We will get through the wilderness. And we will know the abundant life in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is everything we're looking for. Jesus is the cloud and the fire that will lead us in the right way. Jesus is the manna from heaven. And Jesus is the rock from the water that will sustain you so you won't perish. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we do look to you. I mean, we're all thirsty. We're all thirsty for life, for hope, for satisfaction, for fulfillment. And we're all, we're all tempted to settle for, for lesser things that don't really quench. They just make us thirstier. It's like salt water. It touches our lips and it feels cold and good, but then we're just thirstier and thirstier. And Jesus, we repent of that. We repent of our idolatry. We repent of all the places we've turned, that we've made ultimate, that we've looked to instead of you. And now, Jesus, we look to you and say, we want the water. With the woman at the well, we say, give us this water that satisfies so we'll never thirst again, that makes us refreshed and complete. Jesus, we're outside, we feel the heat. Would you satisfy us? Would you quench our thirst? Would you make us whole? For those of us who are in a dry and weary land in the wilderness, Jesus, would you make your presence known? Would we see the rock? Would we see the water? Would we see you, Jesus? Give us eyes to see. We want to know you. We want to have life. We want to live for you. Jesus, you have have found and forged a new way. You tell us who we really are and why we really are and what we're for. So take our hands and lead us home. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.